to this third episode of Washed Up. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to all my past listeners for all of the listens. So many listens. Listens coming out of our ear holes. We went from 50 listens to 150 listens. 150 listens. Who'd have seen that one coming? Not me. I was quite shocked. If you'd like to go and, you know, join in the listen gang, as I'm now going to call you, why not go and like the Washed Up Podcast on Facebook and follow us on Instagram, The Washed Up Podcast. At The Washed Up Podcast, I should say. Keep liking, keep sharing. If you've got anyone you think would like to listen to this show, share it with them. Let's get Listen Gang up to 250 listens. And then fuck knows what'll happen after that. We'll be on Radio 1, probably. Maybe. Probably not. This week, I had the really interesting opportunity and fantastic delight of talking to a man called Kev Windsor, who you might know as DJ Louie Louie. And as you will have noticed, this is a two-part episode. And that is because we had so much interesting stuff to talk about. And I really truthfully mean that. He's had such an incredible life. He started off playing in a band at school, which took him quite a long way. He got on the news, he got in the radio with that. He then joined a Riot Girl band and then he was a radio producer and then he was on the radio and then people are asking for autographs and then just when you think his career couldn't get any further he's DJing at bloody Glastonbury. But without any further waffle from me let's crack on with the show. After some technical difficulties we are ready to rock and roll. Good morning, afternoon. Hello there. Thank you very much for being on the show. I'm really, really excited to have you on here. And I think you were kind of the epitome of everything I really wanted for the show. So I'm super excited to have you here. I thought I'd start actually just by talking to you a little bit about growing up in rural Devon, really, because it's something that we both share in common. And I was going to ask you whether you thought it held you back in any way, the fact that you were sort of quite a long way from any specific creative scene growing up that is a good question and i think it's one that a lot of people who are brought up outside of the big metropolitan areas it's something they have to deal with yeah you do have that sense of distance away from you know where it's at man where things are happening that's also kind of what drives you to kind of do your own thing that's why kind of the punk thing was so important to me because it did you know promote do it yourself and you know just you know just crack on and do things and that that was a real big driving force for us but there's definitely that sense of oh you know everything's happening elsewhere and it's usually in the big city you know you're usually force fed you know all the latest bands from like manchester or london or something i know that you grew up in a sort of a a musical family but it's not not you know not a punk family (laughs) not by any stretch no i mean my dad played the harmonica my granddad used to play drums for like the local village brass band sheepwash i'll put it on the map there and bizarrely, like many families whose parents were kind of brought up in war, I don't know, is the post war, I've no idea, but we had a piano. Nobody could actually play it. <laughs> Other than me hitting it with my elbows every now and again, I never even, you know, attempted to learn it myself. I know, what is that about 
It is a it's a really rural Devon thing of houses with untuned pianos in corners that nobody can play. I think it's a working class aspirational thing. It's almost like, oh, we have a piano in the house, but that's what posh people have. <laughs> I know, I totally agree. And I think maybe it's almost like a it's a hopeful thing. It's like buying your kid a keyboard and, and thinking, oh, maybe they'll learn it. Absolutely. Um, I wish I had now. I really wish I had, because there it was. But, you know, nobody pointed me towards it in any kind of productive way. I did pick up instruments, obviously, in that school. I found myself to be quite good. I don't know where my sense of rhythm came from. I can't say I was born with it, because I must have picked it up somewhere. But I do remember being very drawn to drums and percussion and things like chime bars and xylophones. And I was usually picked out to do kind of solo solo performances in the school assemblies and for the headmaster and stuff like that. You say, you know, you're not born with it. Do you think having musicians in the family is important as a kid for getting into music and developing a kind of a musical interest? Well, no doubt. You hear of many successful musicians who you find out that they they are from a, you know, properly musical background. I, I really can't claim to be from a properly musical background. You know, my dad potted with the harmonica on Sunday mornings, which drove everybody mad. But, you know, you speak to, you know, I, I, like, I've done interviews with like Matt Bellamy from Muse, and, you know, you, you think, oh, you know, these guys from Devon have just sprung up from nowhere. But actually, you then look at his family and his dad, and, you know, he was in, like, the Tornadoes with, you know, who had a big hit with Telstar in the 60s and what have you. So, you know, there's obviously some kind of nurturing that has gone on there, that, which is useful if, if you do find yourself in that situation, if you're born into that situation. I think, as well as having probably the most diverse musical career we've had on the show so far, you definitely have the claim to the earliest album release of <laughs> Chaos. Now, how old were you when you released... Self-released, calculated chaos. <laughs> I don't even know if I released it. I think I might have given it to a couple of mates. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I was probably 10, 11, 12, something like that. And the, the production on it was amazing. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic because I, I literally only had the use of like two. Because I'm, I'm sure this is a story that many people could relate to of a certain age. Before we had free doors available online and, you know, whatever. We used to make do with like a couple of cassette recorders. So you'd record one track onto a cassette and uh, I'd borrow my brothers and whilst playing back the first track, I would play along the, my second contribution to record onto the third track, onto the second cassette machine and keep bouncing down between them. And obviously you'd lose a lot of quality, but then it'd also get its own kind of unique quality. I think, I think it's quite interesting that some musicians these days are actually striving to achieve that kind of degenerative sound if you like i know you were hugely inspired by kind of glam rock and rock and roll and bowie and led zapp and well initially yeah that's that's how how the devil got his tunes into me initially yeah speaking of the devil (laughs) i was going to ask really because it's it's an interesting one for me how do we as music lovers come to terms with the fact that so many of the people who really inspired us have now turned out to want of a better word just to be wrong uns (laughs) <laughs> Are you referring to uh, the, the king of glam rock? <laughs> I may be, I may be. <laughs> well, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because there's this whole thing about, you know, erasing certain people from history, you know, because of more recent you know, bad behaviour, let's say, or, you know. And it's a tricky one, personally. I mean, I don't think the gentleman we're talking about, because let's sort of give him the oxygen of publicity, let's say. But isn't it interesting how a lot of his material, I'm sure everybody knows who we're talking about anyway, 
But I think it's quite interesting. The last year or so, a lot of his material has been recycled. Like if you look yeah. at the Joker film, you know, his killer track is on the soundtrack there, which is like, I saw that and I thought, what the F is going on there? And Green Day have sampled, admittedly, Joan Jett's version of one of his tunes. Gorillas did a, a, a glitter-inspired tune with Marky e. Smith, didn't they? So, you know, the influence is still there, but it, it has to be acknowledged in a different way, I suppose. Because it was undoubtedly quite an influential sound that that production team came up with. I think it was Mike Leander, wasn't it? And it kind of gets you, if you if you were that age then, you know, to hear a bunch of grown men shouting hey over this, like, weird guitar and you know it was like wow i mean it's a big debate about this in in acting as well isn't there you know the, the whole harvey weinstein and kevin spacey you know all the various people have been insinuated you know how do and jackson even i, I don't know it's an open-ended question i've no idea <laughs> it is a big one and i suspected it would be a big one going in but it's certainly a complex one skipping forward a little bit you sort of started your first band or joined your first band at 15 which was Charity Lunch, and you stuck with that band for quite some time. Did it feel like an accomplishment joining a band at that point, or did it feel like kind of the natural way that things were going to go? It was a bit scary, actually, because I was quite, you know, relatively young. I think I was 14, 15, and I knew about these guys in the area, and the band was quite a well-known band at the time. You know, they are doing a lot of sort of functions or what have you. And tragically, the guitarist was, uh, you know, uh, was, was killed in a motorcycle accident. He was quite a well-loved local character. So there was, uh, yeah, as a sort of naive green sort of 15-year-old, it was a bit strange joining the band and trying to take up that particular mantle. But, you know, it's something I knew I wanted to do. So, yeah, we, we got together. We started doing some gigs. I started writing a lot more of my own stuff. But, um, you know, when it came around to performing, I thought, yeah, I like this. You know, standing up and thrashing away on the old plank, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was something I wanted to do. It was a bit casual because obviously at that point, I was a mid-late teenage and all kinds of other stuff going on, you know, girls and what have you. And, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up? And, and, and in some respects, being in a band was kind of half an option. But because the system didn't consider it a good option for you to become a musician especially from you know a certain background then you don't necessarily pursue it with the passion that you with hindsight that you could do you know if I could go back and do it again then I'd probably be a bit more determined and a bit more knowledgeable yeah we achieved a few things you know I got a bit more confident we did some recordings started a bit of interest in local press mainly came out of our own personal frustration that you know you'd put on gigs and your mates and whatever would come along but there was this general apathy it felt like in the general public you know just supporting their local music scene which you know is still a relevant thing you know people still bang on about supporting their local music scene well believe me it was even worse 30 40 years ago and you know it has improved vastly i think it's a musician's frustration isn't it you want your own stuff to be heard yeah we carried on we did some things had some radio coverage did a couple of interviews for BBC and what have you, a bit of local press coverage and what have you. Yeah, <laughs> 7 out of 10, could try harder. <laughs> Would you say that that kind of frustration you felt getting heard and not being listened to and not being supported by the local scene, 
played a, a role in the fact, you know, you've dedicated a large part of your career to helping others get heard and starting quite a few different projects that, you know, they do involve helping other people get their music out there. Gosh, yes, I hadn't, you've recontextualised me. Yes, I hadn't thought of that, but yes, it is kind of true because I got involved with working in local schools, helping with school bands there. I've been more recently been working with a charity called Soundwaves Music Project, which is a project for young adults with various learning difficulties, which is kind of, it's been part funded by Coldplay. And uh, this is very amusing, specifically the fire wardens in the John Peel tent of Glastonbury also fund the project. It was very interesting. I don't know why it's so, <laughs> so uh, niche. So yes, you're kind of right. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it like that. So yes, there is this kind of unacknowledged interest in uh, helping to promote you know new stuff i suppose yeah well yeah and i kind of i couldn't help but notice it really because you've put so much time and effort into helping others get heard i think it's a really amazing way of spending your time you know and it feels like you're really you know giving back in a sense and um you did stick with charity lunch for a while and then after kind of a little bit you know you went to art school you carried on playing with charity lunch you you know you released an ep what was that ep called by the way gosh i think it was rather humorously called the Four Course Lunch EP. So we put that together, could have been done better again. You know, this goes back to the old bit of naivety and putting too much in the hands of others, maybe. The guy that we did the recording with still lives a couple of streets away, actually, called Len Gammon. And uh, I'm not quite sure if he knew what to make of us. And we certainly didn't know what to make of us because we'd never been in a studio before. So we didn't we didn't have an idea what kind of sound we wanted or anything like that. We thought going into it, like I'm sure many people going into it like a quotes proper recording studio for the first time thinks, you know, it's some magic room where you, you just play anything. It'll come out sounding like, you know, I don't know, Fleetwood Mac or something. And it, you know, obviously it doesn't. Things work to get to sounding like your heroes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, fantastic. And then after that, you moved to Bath and you kind of, you started working for the, the Royal Photographic Society. Was that through your degree that you found that role? Kind of, yeah. It was also a bit of a, I forget what it was called now, but there were kind of subsidised places in various arts and media establishments to get dolies out of the dole line. So it was a paid post via that. I was there for like nearly two years. And that's where, ironically, I ended up working with some of the, you know, <laughs> more bigger musical names than, than I could ever have thought at the time. Not in a musical context, because I know I had no plans to, to start a band in Bath, even though Bath then was quite a healthy scene. So, yeah, I got very involved, a bit more involved in the photography side of things. I started taking photographs for bands and performers and hanging out with musicians with a, with an art background i mean that's one of the things you hear about many musicians is you know they go to art it used to be the thing if you're a musician you look at any of the great musicians in the sort of 60s or 70s you know they, they had an artistic visual artistic bent to them as well but they essentially went to art college to meet other musicians to start bands so then working in the arts and photography world, that's where I ended up meeting a lot of musicians like McCartney and, 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 a, few, and a few others. I can't try to remember that. Old Peter Gabriel did some research. Yeah. So, you know, it was, a, it was a crossover zone for me. It's really interesting. And I think that's something that I've dealt with in my own career, definitely. You know, my own very small career is that the times you meet people who you're absolutely desperate to kind of hang out with and get their number are the times that you're really not supposed to. <laughs> exactly. The whole McCartney episode was kind of surreal looking at it now because spent a good week with them because Linda McCartney who some people may realize was a long time wife of Paul you know she was obviously known for her photography I think her father was the founder of the Kodak company or something like that 
And uh, she'd always been working on getting a name for herself. So, so she had this big retrospective at the National Centre of Photography, RPS National Centre of Photography. It was just bizarre, hanging out with the McCartneys, hanging pictures and eating sandwiches and talking about, well, it was talk, talked a little bit about music, but not as much as you think. Talk about painting. And, well, and photography, obviously. I do remember they, they were playing the Scritti Politti album, Cupid and Psyche, quite a lot at the time. So it was, they, they, they were big on that album at the time for some reason. Great album. And then come the opening night, you know, meeting people like, you know, the cover artist Peter Blake and even George Martin. I think it was quite amusing. Paul. Paul, as I like to call him. Came <laughs> 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 so, um, And he took me over to like George Martin and said, oh, uh, this is George Martin. Like, as if I didn't know. You know, it's kind of like, what the fuck am I doing? You know, <laughs> it's like I'm a little country boy. <laughs> I'm meeting George Martin and Paul McCartney. And I was the only person allowed with a camera in that building that night. And I seem to remember the local newspaper, the day after or something, I kind of knew one of the local journalists. He says, oh, come on, we'll develop the film for you. Give us some exclusives or something. Really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> they did develop my film, but I, I can't remember now if they actually printed anything in the paper because I might have been in a bit of trouble if they did. So I probably that probably didn't happen. I do know a few of the pictures did end up on the, they're online somewhere. If you look up online, Bath Archives or something, they're there, they're there for sale. They're not great pictures, but, you know, they were, you know, they were definitely, I was the only one there with, you know, with an official camera. Because the RPS archives still are world famous. So they're a, a big resource for various people, publishers, books, films, what have you, for the old daguerreotypes and what have you. I remember Peter Gable coming to do some research for his, uh, as a single, Don't Give Up, when he did with Kate Bush. And he originally wanted pictures of like striking miners and old kind of protest pictures. So it kind of helped him source some archive material for that, which he never ended up using in the end. I think they ended up just having a video with him snogging Kate Bush all the way through it. Well, you know, who can blame him? <laughs> uh, you know, wouldn't we all? Uh, no, I'm joking. Uh... It, that was all kind of bizarre because I had no interest in, in, in wanting to form a band at that point. I was still heavily into music. And there's all kinds of things happening in the 80s music scene. It wasn't all about, you know, rah-rah skirts and big hair because there's the whole C86 music indie, indie scene. And there was also the second wave hip-hop and also Acid House was coming in. And this is all stuff that thoroughly excited me because it had that futurist rebellion aspect to it that punk had. So I really hooked onto the whole C86 indie scene and definitely the whole kind of second wave hip-hop, Public Enemy, all the Def Jam stuff loved it was all over it and then acid house came in and that was like a big countercultural movement as well if you like and that spilled over to my time in london the whole musical thing became a little more opened up and i started doing bizarrely started doing what i now call mashups i'd bought an old amstrad studio 100 and i think i did an acid house remix of the smiths the queen is dead you know which is like i thought was thoroughly exciting and I did a, a kind of another acid house remix of an old country song called This Old House. And there was a band called The Hollow Men used to, apparently, I don't know how they got hold of it. Because I used to send a lot of stuff back in the old days before the interweb. A lot of stuff happened in the mail. You know, the whole, like the old flux of 60s art movement. There was a, a whole network of people who write to each other via the mail. So I was contributing a lot to that sort of noise and overdub and overtaping experiments and stuff like that. So it obviously got into the hands of somebody. And yeah, they used, used it as walk-on music. But also I was de developing more of an academic interest in 
visual culture and culture generally and as it happens right then sort of late 80s one of the hippest courses that were developing in universities then was cultural studies and I got accepted to Middlesex to do cultural studies. Yeah, well, that's sort of where I was going to move on to because you got accepted into Middlesex. And then alongside that, you're kind of really focusing a lot on DJing. And like you said, there's a lot of this whole new movement of music is coming along. But with that, you kind of got pulled back into the idea again of starting a band, which was the Whipping Boys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I got into the theory of cultural practice and music, music subculture theory, stuff like that got into the whole you know, post-structuralist thing. But then also, ironically, because my girlfriend at the time was at Plymouth, during the holidays, good and there, and I met a couple of other guys. We got on really well. It was um, Richard, who was originally from Starbridge, and knew all that whole kind of black country Starbridge scene, Pop Will Eat Itself and all that thing. And then there was Steve, who was from Barking in London. Three diverse backgrounds. We all somehow got on, and so we formed the Whipping Boys while still at college and started doing gigs. And that began another chapter when I didn't really expect it to. I know, because I was going to say, the Whipping Boys, you know, I would describe as a real glancing blow at mainstream success in a way. You recorded a few tracks with Dave McDonald of Portishead, which is bizarre because my mother actually went to school with Beth Gibbons from Portishead. Well, she lives down here still somewhere. The idea of Portishead was obviously kicking around at that point, because I do remember some other guys coming into the control room. I think one was Jeff, well, I think Jeff Barrow was definitely there. And Dave McDonald was, as I'm sure you know, was kind of Portishead's main engineer. Um, you know, he was definitely billed as part of Portishead. And I don't think we were quite his thing, but nice guy. So, um, yeah, we did some recordings with him, which uh, we kind of sent around to a few record labels and venues, whatever. We started playing a few gigs. And once again, it was kind of because we we'd started as a college, but we didn't necessarily take it as seriously as we could. I think this is possibly the curse of most musicians that turned up on your podcast washed up because they don't necessarily <laughs> they haven't necessarily been all at all at sea anyway to be washed up in the first place. And I think we kind of once again could have tried harder, but we got to like sort of new band showcases at the uh, sort of legendary Rock Garden in London and you know, a few BBC new band concerts and uh, things we played in Bristol. They mentioned in there was one particular magazine gave us a heads up. I think it was called Zine Magazine. It's quite a glossy thing, mid-90s. We were, you know, brought up in the same column as, as I had previously mentioned, bands like Shed Seven or Supergrass. We what? Us? That's incredible. <laughs> well, I know, but it would have been if anything had materialised for it. But, you know... Whilst this was happening, we were getting sort of local listing magazines as, you know, being promising, what have you. We were sending out stuff to record labels and, you know, just, just not getting any traction at all, man. So then we also got involved with the Daylight Music CD project, which was put together by a local studio with the aim of pushing and promoting the scene as it was in Devon at that time. So it was nice to be part of that. And uh, that was another I was going to say heroic failure, because it wasn't a failure as such. It was a worthy project. It was probably ill-executed is the word I'm looking <laughs> for. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, a few people came. There's a guy called Carvis Tarobi, who was in one of the bands there now. DJs with Steve Davis, the snooker player. Very really? Yeah, because Steve Davis likes his kind of experimental and prog stuff. 
so Carvist, the DJs with him. That's the bizarrest turnaround that that could have ever taken. I thought a lot might come up in this show, but Steve Davis, the snooker player, was, I'm going to say, very low on the list. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. The wild world of the music business. That's Sorry, it's just absolutely shaking me. I just never thought Steve Davis... <laughs> in any capacity. You, you look it up, Steve Davis and Carlos Tarobin, and uh, prepare to have a chuckle. And then look up some, they did a boiler room session. Really? Yeah, they did They did one of those uh, a year or so ago. But yeah, now going back to the Daylight Project, it, it was a positive thing for the Southwest and Devon music scene at the time. And it goes back to the other thing that we were talking about, the whole sense of insecurity about and, and um, coming from the Southwest, really. Because there's a sense that the music business stopped at Bristol, you know what I mean? So it was good that somebody took some kind of initiative to draw all that together. As I say, it was a little uh, ill-executed, but I think it got sent out to like the business. And I think the most positive thing that came out of it, I had a chat with some, I don't know how he got in touch with us. Well, yes, I do, because we had the phone number in the booklet. <laughs> and, and this guy called me up and he was, wanted to put together like his package tour of bands from the UK. And he'd heard our track. He, he, he didn't really like our track. Then his daughter heard it and said, oh, yeah, actually, this is quite good. And he wanted to put this like, kind of like package tour of three or four bands up and coming to tour Japan. And of course, I was wildly excited about this prospect. Someone that had a high-level meeting in, with him in, in the local pub. <laughs> and then sat back and then nothing happened. I didn't even get a, sorry, this has all been a terrible waste of time. So, uh there was absolutely nothing to go on in the Devon scene then. There probably were one or two things, but then in terms of anything that people could kind of look up to vaguely as an influence. But now there's kind of like Muse, can definitely say, you know, it was a Devon band. Even Coldplay, you know, everybody acknowledges Chris Martin was a Devon boy, don't you? And you don't know, did Matt Bellamy hear this CD from Daylight? You don't know. We don't know. I can't make any claims. It's a nice thought. <laughs> To have inspired anyone to get into music and to inspire anyone to feel like they can really go somewhere with music is a really lovely thing to do. Do you think that being part of, you know, the Whipping Boy and feeling like you could really go somewhere with that and then you end up in Persecution Complex and they really were going somewhere, do you think those two things link? Do you think feeling like, oh, you know, actually maybe this music industry thing could do something for me and then you suddenly end up in a band that really is doing something? Do you think those two things were linked? Yeah, definitely. Because I suppose you get to a certain level of, this sounds very grand, a certain level of operating. And you've learned to deal with certain issues of the more focused attention on your project, if you like. And you get, not blasé, but you get used to the idea of seeing, you know, your band's name in print or something, you know. Or even hearing a track on the radio or something. It takes you to another level of kind of psychological acceptance of things, you know what I mean? And so that was kind of happened because, like, for various reasons, uh, Rich and Steve went and pursued their other careers in there, and I kind of finished up a few things. We put out several cassettes, getting nice reviews and what, I mean, all stuff like that, but we didn't kind of then really, you know, push it. We'd kind of done what we could do then. And then I met the girls in Persecution College. I was working at a local school and, and one of them was there and they were getting through a few drummers. So I offered my, offered my services, if you like. They really were much more driven. So they were quite young at the time. And I was, I don't know, 30, I think, 30 something. You know, I was a bit jaded, naive with stuff that had happened. But it was around the time the whole Riot Girl thing was happening as well. And that seemed once again, like another surge of energy from the underground which I obviously 
seem to find myself attracted to for some reason. <laughs> it seems to me uh, I'm always looking for the new and, and uh, recently unfurled, you know what I mean? So yeah, and they, they were getting, you know, nice support slots at the school. I managed to get free practice room for us, which was quite useful. And we became uh, quite a, a tight outfit, I suppose, but also slack in, in another way. It's a hard aesthetic to describe. Several dates with, um, here's somebody else for you to look up kids. Huggy Bear, who were kind of 90s right at school here, caused a bit of a fury on the TV show, The Word. You can look, look up that clip as well. So we ended up doing several dates with Huggy Bear, three or four dates. So that was strange, actually being part of a, a scene as well. We were being followed around by Graham Coxon at the time from Blur, because he was going out with Karen from the band. So we spent the summer of 94, I saw quite a lot of Graham Coxon and drinking pints. And he still owes me a couple of pints of beer, actually. He's probably forgotten your <laughs> So that was interesting, being seen under that kind of light. Um, did like the opening dates of These Animal Men. Another one to look up, folks. We played uh, Tunbridge Wells, I think it was, and uh, Exeter and Plymouth, I think. And so they were introducing and were on top of the pops on the night before the opening night of the tour that we were on. So it was really great to kind of experience that kind of crowd and supporting a band with that kind of interest at the time, because they were kind of like quite infamous at the time for the promotion of uh, uh, amphetamines. So it was nice to be part of the, the, that and be accepted and seen outside of a local band context and being thought of as being like a quote proper band. It was great, I loved being on the road, even though being on the road, it sounds like we were all in one transit van, it was actually a mini convoy of Volvo Estates, if I remember rightly. And obviously sleeping accommodation, it was like, you know, bunking on the floor or sofas or what have you. But yeah, it was just very thrilling and getting the attraction of a sort of nice review in Melody Maker, Holly Hernandez column, I think it was being listed in, you know, kind of gig of the week with Melody Maker and I'll tape, I forget how it happens. I ended up in the hands of Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth, which then led to Hubby at the time, uh, Thurston sending a, a, a kind of fan postcard to me, which is actually probably my greatest bit of musical ephemera memorabilia. <laughs> I've got the actual thing, you know, I've got a copy of it framed on my bathroom wall. So yeah, we were kind of like into that, being acknowledged by peers in that kind of scene was kind of like, what? You know, but it was just hard to take on board that you're being peer reviewed and it was good. So sort of looking back, do you often think that, not that you would have done everything, anything differently, but you just kind of think, I wish I'd known how massive this was at the time, how, how important this was? Yeah, I don't think it was massive, but I mean, it was certainly, there were as many possible hands up or connections then as you'd kind of want to hope from from being in a band. But um, once again, you know, conflicting interests. The girls really wanted to do do something bigger beyond the underground stuff. But at that point, I'd got a bit jaded and cynical about, quotes the music business anyway. And I kind of pulled back a bit. They moved to that there in London again. And they were kind of instrumental in starting what became 
and much hyped, but ultimately doomed to fail, new romantic movement of the mid-90s called Romo. I know, it's bizarre actually. You know, I don't mean to blow my own trumpet here, but it's rare that I find a musical genre that I've genuinely never heard of. I honestly, it never come up and I had no idea what it was. And I'm still not entirely sure I do now. Well, I think in the midst of the whole mid-90s Britpop, quite laddish, it was kind of birth of lad culture, wasn't it, I suppose? And I think the Romo movement was a kind of postmodern, if you like, extraction of the original New Romantic movement. There's much debate about it. You know, some people say it only really existed in the pages of a certain music magazine. But, you know, it was a thing. I had a bit of TV coverage. And they were quite instrumental in that. And then I think they ended up, well, they did. They ended up changing their name to something else. But then he also worked with being Boy George's backing band. He had a project tribute to Lee Bowery, the performance artist. And they ended up being backing for Boy George for a while. So that was another little side thing. I became quite ill in the 90s, and so I had no interest in carrying on with bands once again. (laughs) That's what I was going to kind of ask, actually, because I think that is genuinely one of those really interesting questions, and it's a question that I ask myself quite a lot. Do you think that us extroverts, and while I don't play in a band or claim to be in any sort of enormous musical success, I'm clearly extroverted, here I am making a podcast, you're clearly extroverted, you spent your life performing and wanting to be heard do you think all of us kind of extroverted fools so to speak are doomed to spend at least two months a decade kind of recovering at our parents yeah, house? probably yeah well you know it's the old things i honestly don't think i know any creatives who don't have this hole in them that constantly needs filling and validating i think it's just what drives most creative people isn't it i think i'd be deeply suspicious of anybody who had a kind of normal upbringing and, and no trauma was at all in their life. I wouldn't trust their motives almost. <laughs> well, there we go. That was the first part of my conversation with Kev Windsor, a.k.a. DJ Louie Louie. Next week, we chat a bit more about his time as a DJ, both on radio and at Glastonbury, and as a producer on the radio. I was really excited to have Kevin in the studio, the virtual studio, and I thought it was a fantastic interview. Before you go, if you'd like to follow this podcast on whatever fantastic app you've decided to use, that would mean the world to me. And if you'd like to recommend it to a friend, that would be even better. And apart from that, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back next week. Mm